Hi everybody, I'm I'm elated to have a new episode of the podcast. I'm talking to Matt Darling, who is uh, Employment Policy Fellow at Miss Conan Center. Uh, hi Matt, nice to have you on on the show. Hey Fred, nice to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, your Twitter handle is best trousers. Why do you think you have the best trousers? That's a great question. Um, it's it, it's actually not um, any sort of commentary on uh, sartorial choice. Um, it's a line from a, an 1888 Henrik Ibsen play. Henrik Ibsen is, um, I think, Swedish. He's Swedish or Norwegian, Norwegian. or something. something yeah, Norwegian. Um, and he has a play called Enemy of the People. Um, and it's, it's actually great that you asked it because I, I feel like it's so uh, relevant to a lot of uh, current discussions. Um, but the basic plot of it is there's a scientist who discovers that the town's... Um, he, he lives in a town that, you know, everything's based on like these, these spas, right? They, they have geothermal spas. And he, re- and he does some, he, he, he realizes that these spas are actually full of bacteria. They're actually, you know, uh, making people sick and everything like that. And he's writing a scientific paper. And at first, um, everyone is sort of embracing him because it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's great to, you know, people are pro-science. They want to get rid of the corruption. And then eventually people start realizing like, wait a second, our town's economy is completely based on these spas um, and people <laughs> coming to them. Um, and they, it, it sort of ends up with everyone in the town turning against them and, and you know, finding, you know, uh, ways to pick apart his argument and, and, you know, basically running him out of town. Um, and at, at one point, you know, I think, I think he gets like egged or something like that. Um, and he, he or, or it's like people throw mud at him or something like that. And he, and he sort of says like, oh, never, never put on your, your best trousers when you go out to fight and for truth and justice. Um, and I, um, you know, that, that's sort of a great description of uh, arguing with people on the internet. Uh, so it's a, <laughs> um, it's, it's a good, it's a good um, na- name for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a sense that you've grown up both on the internet and in in the real world in two different ways. What has been your 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 economics journey, both online and offline? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll I'll do like the sort of short biography focused on on economics. Um, but like, you know, I went to college. I don't know. You know, I think I, I had vague inclinations to becoming like a lawyer or something like that, or you know. Um, and I, I remember being in like philosophy classes being like, this is very frustrating. Uh, like people are just saying random stuff. Um, and, and then I took a, a course in game theory and I was like, oh, this is really, really interesting. And I like how this allows you to, you know, think about, you know, different types of questions in this sort of systematic way. Um, and, you know, in game theory does that with, with sort of, you know, you can do that with moral questions and stuff like that. Um, and that led me to doing a lot of work in experimental economics. So, uh, um, and, and sort of the connections with game theory on that. Uh, so I did a lot of work on, you know, how game theory or economic predictions could be uh, validated using lab experiments. Uh, so, so work like Bernard Smith does, um, Colin Cameron does, uh, things like that. Um, so I was sort of like, in college, I had this sort of mixture of cognitive science and economics background. Um, and then I graduated from college, and it turns out that that's that in 2005 that was not a great combination of skills to have. Um, that you you basically you know I, I was not competitive for the psychologist jobs against the psychologists, and I was not competitive for the econ jobs against the economists. Um, and I was applying for a bunch of RA positions because I, I wanted to go to grad school in either econ or psych. Uh, so I ended up doing is I, I ended up working as a consultant for a few years. Um, then we went back and got a master's in econ 
with the idea that like that would allow me to sort of refocus and just be a, a pure econ person so I could then you know do econ related stuff. Uh, unfortunately, I, I still was really interested in the psych stuff and, and I ended up doing like my master's thesis on you know, a very similar thing that to my, my bachelor's thesis. I was doing stuff on cognitive load and how people make moral decisions. Um, and, and, you know, so basically like if you give people, um, if you over text their memory, their short-term working memory, how did that change the moral decisions that they, they make over time? Um, fortunately, during that time, um, there are now jobs that, that did want psych slash e-composition. So I started working at Ideas42. Um, Ideas42 was a nonprofit that was, um, you know, started out as a laboratory at Harvard when I was there, but then split off as a nonprofit. But the basic idea was to go and take findings of behavioral economics and apply them to public policy. Um, so I did a lot of work there. Um, on the design of anti-poverty programs, uh, but also like very, very widely did this stuff. I did international development. You know, how do you get farmers to time um, when they plant crops better? I did stuff on uh, financial counseling. I did stuff on climate change. How to get people to use less energy? Um, just, but just like a lot, you know, I was there for 10 years. So I did just like a lot of different types of projects. Um, and then um, I, I started at the Niskanen Center uh, three months ago. Um, and I can maybe tell about what sort of led to that. Um, but basically, you know, I, was, I was doing some work, I was doing some work consulting with the Department of Labor on, on the behavioral science stuff. So basically going and working with the Department of Labor folks and being like, you know, how do you improve how this function works um, by mm -hmm. integrating insights from behavioral economics? So, um, some examples of this is we did some work with reemployment programs. Um, so reemployment programs are, you know, you might be receiving unemployment insurance and you get a letter in the mail saying you are required to come to this in-person meeting at your local American job center. And people get this letter and they have no idea what it means. It's like this, you know, it, it's like every letter you get from the government, it's 20 pages long. It doesn't tell you what it actually means until like page five. And all, and I basically said, okay, well, all we need to like, we need to make it so people can actually communicate what the value of going to this was. Um, and basically just wrote people in, you know, a short email saying, hey, you know, you're going to get a letter in the mail tomorrow. Uh, we tried to like time it so it would come out uh, right before you got the letter. And this is what the letter is going to say, but this is what it's really about. We're actually, you know, reemployment services are going to help you um, do, do all these things, um, get you actually into the job market faster. And it was great because like, this program, this reemployment program that we were working on, it had a 50% show up rate, like no one went to it. Um, and this is really bad because like, if you didn't go to it, you could get kicked off your unemployment insurance. But like, people just didn't know, know that they didn't know how to interpret the letter. And so we got that up to 85%. So it was a nice, a, a nice sort of thing. Um, so I was doing work like that. Uh, we did some work with OSHA, some work with other, other agencies. Um, and then uh, two years ago, uh, the coronavirus happened. Um, and what's happening is there's a lot of debate about, you know, how unemployment insurance should function. Um, and, and because, you know, the CARES Act was doing this huge, huge increase to the baseline UI rates um, to, to sort of compensate for the, 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 the huge economic shock. Um, and I got very critical of a lot of the, you know, the way people were talking about this and ended up arguing with folks about this a lot, um, ended up, you know, just really being very engaged with this. Um, and then uh, in March of last year, uh, Sam Hammond, who's been on, on your podcast, um, was you know, putting out that they were looking for an employment policy fellow. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I, would, I am arguing with people about you know, the design of unemployment insurance for free right now um, and <laughs> to the detriment of my other work possibly. And I would love to, <laughs> to, to focus on that um, and, and make that sort of uh, the, the main thing, thing that I'm working on. And so that's yeah. what I've been up to the last few months. 
you might as well get paid for argue for 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 arguing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. It's been if if my if my history of economic thought serves right, it's been around 10 years since peak nudge. Uh, around 2010, 2011, there, there was this huge, there, there was the, the, the idea that you could use behavioral economics to change the world, or, or at least a good part of, 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 of economic policy. You had um, yeah, tiny bugs in, uh, tiny posters of bugs in urinals and so many <laughs> other big things that, that happened. Um, 10 years later, what has been the net effect of of that on policy making um like yeah, yeah. first of all has it had an impact if so positive or negative oh that's a great question and and, and it's very tied with my history right uh, so if you were sort of following the numbers on that like i started ideas for you too basically in 2010 um and basically like that's like i think nudge came out in 2009 i can't remember exactly but like it was right at the moment where like nudge was like a big deal and so i was i was sort of the one of the people putting nudge stuff into practice. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so there, there's sort of two ways I can talk about it. It's like one is like the nudge stuff is so important in that it helped reframe a lot of policy decisions off of sort of like generic econ stuff to like, how do these programs actually work, right? Um, so Esther Duflo has a great essay that you should check out, which is like the economist as a plumber. Um, and her basic thing was like, you know, economists are going out and doing this, they're doing all these evaluation things. But when you do this evaluation stuff is what you end up realizing is like, you know, what is, you know, the, the, how do you get from not being at this sort of abstract level of like, okay, what is the incentive to like, how does this policy actually work? How does it actually work on the ground? How do people interface with it? And one of the huge, huge values to, of, of nudge and, and that sort of broader social movement has been getting people to actually engage on that. Um, so like, you know, people, you know, you know, so like a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about, you know, with respect to UI, people are like, oh, you know, how does, you know, how do these programs actually work? And you go and you sit down and you, you talk about, you know, income effects and substitution effects or, or same thing with like the child tax credit. Um, and then, you, you know, a lot of what I understand is like, okay, but how do people actually interface with this? You know, if you are someone who is eligible for this, how do you find out that you're eligible? How do you actually gain this? Um, and, you know, just going, like a lot of my work at Ideas for Two had been basically finding, you know, these awful, awful government forms and being like, what if this form was written so that a human being could understand what was being asked of them to do that? And that's a huge, huge lens. And I, I think, you know, completely, you know, invaluable um, and ha has influenced policy a lot. So like a, a big thing with us having in the Obama administration was the, um, the social behavioral sciences team, which went and like basically applied nudge theory at all sorts of things. Um, I did this for the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor has its own separate uh, chief evaluation office. So I was doing sort of within the context of, of that. So that, that let, let me say like, that, that's been hugely valuable. Um, now let me be, be a little bit negative uh, on this. And, and there's a way that this stuff can get oversold. Um, and the way I think about this is like the difference between like the, what I was doing and the difference between like what people talk about in like TED Talks, right? So like a TED Talk goes and they say like, here's this like tiny little thing you change about behavior and it makes this enormous difference and it reshapes your mind. And like almost everyone who did a TED Talk on that, like it didn't end up like, you know, when they went and tried to do replication of it, like, okay, this doesn't actually work. Um, and I think, I think, you know, what, what, I think about this is like, you know, this stuff, thinking about this from like a human factor stuff, like it's about thinking about it as an R&D process. It's about going and saying like, how do we make these programs work better? How do we do that? 
And Nudge is a super valuable insight into, into doing that. Um, at the same time, like I feel like, you know, a lot of folks ended up sort of doing the sort of here's how you do magic um, things versus like, here's how you do a three year process improvement plan that leads to better programs and leads to improve food programs and makes things a lot better. Um, and then the, the, the last thing I'll, I'll say about this is that, you know, Nudge was, you know, a victim of its own success. Um, I don't know, you know, Thalo has a new version of the book. Uh, Thalo and Sunstein have a new version of the book. I haven't actually read it yet. Uh, I, I should get around to it soon. Um, but like, I think one of the things that I think about is that, you know, a lot of folks said, said like, oh, behavioral economics is about nudges. Um, and the nice thing about nudges is that they're really cheap, right? Like you can go and be like, aha, here's this very simple change you make to something that makes this huge improvement. Um, but actually like a lot of the things that I think is most important from behavioral science stuff is not, here's this cheap thing. It's like, here's this way to reconceptualize how we design programs based on how humans actually work that isn't going to necessarily be an extent. It might be a complete rethink of the program need it to be you know, stripped down and redesigned completely. Uh, but I think that's where like a lot of the value going forward is going to be. Um, you know, there'll, there'll always be nudges to do. There's always going to be, you know, bad, bad government forms to, to rewrite. But I think that's where the, 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 the real value add is going to be is, is the sort of total reconceptualization of, of how programs operate. Yeah, there's a, a fairly detailed answer. You covered a few questions I want to ask. Um, is it true that, that poverty has a cognitive tax? It seems like a debated thing, at least on Twitter. I, I, I don't know about the literature. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the poverty as a cognitive tax is, is in an interesting place right now. Um, and this can go, you know, so, so let, me, let me back up a little bit. So, um, you know, maybe I think these papers came out in like 2012 or so. And this is, this is Sendal Mullenathan, um, Anusha, lots of other folks. Um, and then lots of folks that I work very closely with and are, and are you know, co-founders or scientific directors of Ideas42. Um, and they had these papers that were basically investigating how you know, whether poverty functions as a sort of cognitive task. And the, the idea being that, um, you know, if you, you know, th there's a lot of, you could sort of look out the world and say, hey, you know, poverty is correlated with maybe bad decisions um, at some level. And the way people have sort of interpreted this most of the time is that, um, you know, bad decisions leads to poverty. And what Sendal and Anuj and other folks were saying is like, what if, what if it's the opposite? Wait, wait, what if it's that poverty leads to bad decisions? What if being in a condition of poverty leads to um, you, you know, this sort of cognitive tax concept of, of being over, mentally overloaded, being, um, you know, ha having to make decisions quickly, having to make stuff with, with limited bandwidth, um, having to, you know, thinking about things like um, having willpower and thinking about willpower is like a finite resource that you are drawing from. So that, that was a bunch of papers that they came out with in the you know, mid-15s, you know, 2012 to 2016 or so. Um, in the last few years, some of those papers have failed to replicate. And I, I want to be clear about this because what's failed to replicate generally is the papers that tried to prime you to think about poverty, right? And so like, we, we had papers which would be something like... Um, we're going to ask you some questions and we're going to manipulate whether we ask you about, you know, how would you deal with a $200 like car repair versus the $2,000 car repair? And the idea was that would prime you and put you into sort of a condition of potential poverty where you're thinking about being poor, your mind is sort of working on this. Um, and then that, that may lead to, to, you know, worse cognitive performance on tests. And those have basically failed to replicate. And, 
and that, that's that's important. And, and, and uh, Sentinel News were actually, I think, the first people to to to, to do a replication of this and, and then publish it. And of course, you know, the way the world works is that that you know their first paper got two thousand citations, and their paper <laughs> that criticized their own real paper got like fifty. Um, but what I do want to emphasize is like that's what's failing to replicate right now is the priming literature, right? And and, and the priming literature is like sort of not is basically I think what's coming out of like a lot of the behavioral sciences being just sketchy in general and, and hard to replicate. Um, and, you know, and you could go to people who defended and, and say like, hey, it's hard to replicate because it's just hard to do primes. But what I do want to emphasize is that we also, there's also a bunch of non-priming literature on this that actually tries to deal with things like poverty directly. Um, so like, you know, because, because like we don't care about the priming literature. The priming literature is not the important thing. What we care about is what, what the actual conditions of poverty do. Um, and the problem with that is it's 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 harder to figure out exogenous shocks to poverty. Uh, that's you know you 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 just can't actually do that um, in the way that you'd want to. Um, so some of the papers that they did have, and I don't think anyone's actually tried to replicate, but like they did stuff with looking at um, developing world farmers and seeing how how developing world farmers. Like the nice thing about that is you don't have. Um, exogenous shocks necessarily, but you basically do have, um, people have a harvest and they have a harvest and all of a sudden you're, you have a ton of money because you just harvested, you just sold all your stock and you just like, that's all the money you earn for the year if you, or, or for the season, you know, I, I'm not a farmer, I don't know how this works, uh, but like it, it, you had, all your income is very, very concentrated in a, in a very short period of time. And they found these sorts of cognitive things within that. And like, that's the main thing we care about, not the priming literature itself. Uh, so the priming literature is sort of falling apart um, as is almost all priming literature. Um, I, I haven't seen that with like the sort of um, the, the, the more exogenous shock to, to real world poverty literature. Um, though obviously like, you know, if the priming literature falls apart, that, like, that can be questioned a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, two questions here. The first being that I don't find the farming one very convincing because when you're a farmer, you have the expectation that on average you're um you're like the like like you like you have a mean expectation of the harvest over the years. So it's not strictly comparable to developed world um urban poverty. And my second question is. Um, your when you make recommendations based on this 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 research, the problem is that your output has to be fairly clear cut. You have to say do X or don't do X or do this combination of policies. But the but your input, which is the research you you read or in some cases might conduct, the those that isn't very clear cut, right? It's it, it's not very obvious what it says. So how do you so how do you deal with the meta game of first of all knowing what literature to cite and second and second dealing with the fact that you know what you're citing might be wrong or or just or won't be comprehensible ten years down the lane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like that's a great question. Uh, what I'll say is like you know like a lot of this is about. And this is this is interesting for me, like moving into a world where I'm doing more explicit policy work, right? I'm doing more like explicit policy recommendations. So I'm still sort of thinking about this stuff on 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 so my own professional terms. But like a lot of this is, you know, hypothesis tell us something about the world, right? And and we're mm -hmm. trying to make policy in, you know, and we want to make be making policy, you know, conceiving of sorts of real hypotheses. So again, like I don't think that, you know, like you know, the, the, the poverty impedes cognitive function stuff, like the, that doesn't necessarily like go and say like, aha, 
here's all these things we should be we should be um, like that. There's not like a straightforward one-to-one -one policy recommendation that flows out of that. But there are, you know, there are ways of thinking about policy that that does support, and there's ones that doesn't support, right? Um, so, like, you know, you, you if you look at that, you say, okay, like, you know, if you are thinking about this, you know, to if that framing is true, it, it suggests that like a lot of ways we think about that policy tends to work for uh, for poor people is like actually really really bad, and it might be really really bad with that not true or with the true. Uh, but like, you know, a lot of the ways that things work is based on the assumption that, you know, if you want to get money, if you want to get programs to people who really need it, is that you make them jump through a whole bunch of hoops. Um, and the sort of theory about that is like the people who really want it, the people who really need it will be the people who are most willing to deserve that, to, to go through the hoops. And that's, that's an actual like theory that people have that out there that has no experimental validation, you know, versus shaky experimental validation. Um, but like this, you know, in the, one of the implications of the sort of, you know, scarcity and poverty work is very much that like, okay, you know, if you think about that, like if you're going to do this, um, you, you have to think about it. And like, when you actually look at how these programs work in the real world, like it, it does bear in mind that, you know, you look at, you know, I've worked with, you know, people receiving, you know, SNAP in Vermont and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, like I need to go in person, you know, once a week or, you know, to, to like, hand in like some some form and you're like that's really absurd you know i don't i i as a per as a person who's you know middle middle to upper income um you know very rarely have to ever you know go and hand in something a form in person and when i do i'm it's i'm super super frustrated by it and this is something that's like you know for a lot of poor people it's part of their everyday life and their the, you know the way that they experience stuff with the government and so like you know i think about you know these hypotheses you know they 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 play a role in that sort of debate, um, but obviously, like all you know, policy decisions aren't made on the basis of someone writes a white paper and and, and then it gets adapted, right? Uh, the white papers you know, are are you know very very have a very loose connection to that sort of process, uh, but it is you know thinking about okay, like how do we how do we make you know build frameworks and like the same thing, like like I, I want to emphasize as much as possible, like you know, right now, a lot of the psychology stuff is in this sort of replication crisis and, and figuring out like, okay, what does replicate well? What doesn't replicate well? And like a lot of other empirical science or quasi-empirical sciences aren't even there, right? So like macroeconomics, you know, it does, you know, we have 200 countries over 50 years of data. Like there's not even enough data for it to have a replication crisis, let alone <laughs> um, like, like, like be challenged by it. That's a that's a uh, fair that's a, a fair explanation. I take it then that um, do you is there some literature you are absolutely confident about that if that if somebody said Matt um, will you bet me hundred dollars that you know in the next five times people do do this again this is going to uh, replicate five out of those five times does that like does that so do you have those sort of uh, epistemic uh, levels in your head you, you base your evidence on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so this is this is something I'll, I'll argue is like auction theory. Like auction theory is something that's been done in like every possible like audience and all these sorts of things. And like, 
you know, and it, it's got these nice game theories and sense of stuff and it, it, it fits and it works and it works like very regularly. And like one thing I like to do that like pisses people off sometimes is to be like auction theory is basically as well validated as like, you know, any any sort of like basic high school physics, you know, dropping, mm. you know, blocks down ramps, right? It's something that you can validate in laboratory settings. You can validate in real world settings. It's something that 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 clearly goes on. Um, and like, you know, I... I can't think of too much on 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 that. Like, the, but the, you know, obviously, a lot of social science stuff is contingent, and you have to be like, okay, where you know, what's the context this is happening? How does it sort of interact with other institutions and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. um, it can be a little bit messier, but like the messiness is isn't that different from other, you know, what, what, like the the, the art the, the artifactual distinction between like social sciences and natural sciences, I think messes up a lot of this discourse, right? Um, there are things like auction theory that are really well validated, really sort of things. There are general things like, um, it, it, it's sort of funny, like, so like you could go back to econ and be like, okay, econ has this theory where people respond to incentives. Um, and, you know, I think that's a fairly well validated theory but also has sort of wacky moments where it doesn't work, right? So the classic example of this is like the Haifa daycare study um, that you know anyone who's read Freakonomics has, has heard of. I'll, I'll give a brief summary of it, uh, even though it's such a classic, I think most people in your audience know it, but like the, it was a daycare in Israel and they said, hey, we're going to start charging people a fine for picking up their kids late. And what happened when they did this is that it immediately um, everyone started being more late. And basically what it was is you could buy being rude. Uh, you, before, if I picked up my kids late, I just felt horrible about it. Um, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this really inconsiderate thing. And then you're like, oh, like this is a market thing. And now it, it's, you know, I, this is, it is worth, you know, 30 bucks for me to stay a half hour late at work. So I'll just buy that. Um, and, it, you, and so it's called, uh, the paper's called the fines of price because basically the fine changes the, 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 the construal of this, this engagement. You see, you know, you see that sort of thing um, happening. And so like a lot of this stuff is ending up like, it's less about, you know, does this replicate or, you know, does, is this real? But being like, what is the actual condition this is under, right? So like, you know, you, you people argue these sorts of things where like, you know, is paying people for blood donation, you know, is that something that's going to do that? Is paying people for kidney donations? And like, that's an empirical question, right? Um, and there's some parameters that, you, you know, let you look at it and say, hey, is this something where, um, you know, this is something that already is being construed as a market um, and the font, you know, adding a price to it is just going to make it better or is it something that's not construed as a market and, and making, you know, adding price might make it worse. Um, but like, that's an empirical question. Um, and, you know, figuring out that, that sort of thing takes qualitative, quantitative um, evidence to, to figure out. But it's not like something where you're like, oh, you know, this doesn't replicate. Um, similarly, like a whole bunch of, um, recent, you know, people tried incentives to like get people vaccinated, right? And you're like, oh, we're going to give people like 50 bucks to get vaccinated. And like, they're like, oh, nothing happened. And you're like, yeah, well, the people who don't want to get vaccinated, like 50 bucks is not a big incentive. You know, maybe it would work with, with 5,000 or something like that. But like no one would, it's sort of interesting epistemically uh, where like, you know, if an econ thing doesn't replicate, you're like, oh, a behavioral econ thing doesn't replicate. People are like, oh my gosh, it's a crisis. Whereas like, incentives work, you know, fails to replicate all the time, but like, we feel like we understand the circumstances and when that happens and no one's like, oh my gosh, everything is falling apart. No, no, no. I completely understand because there's this, I don't know what, there was this New York Times editorial 
a year ago, two years ago by Banerjee and Duflo. And they were like, incentives don't matter. And then Scott Alexander wrote a huge post saying that, you know, incentives do matter, but at the at the margin, I can't believe they they wrote that. But the answer is like, both of them are right. And uh, like Scott's answer is a, is a super set of Banerjee and Duflo's answer. They, if, if, if they don't work on the... Um, average they do work on the margin but the bigger the 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 game outside this is that somebody inside the econ world will say oh you just haven't set your uh, your um your your incentive uh, high enough which um brings me to the yeah can, can i give a classic uh, before you go into your next question like the classic example of this is like the the game theory stuff on the ultimatum game right um mm -hmm. where like they're doing this with college students and, you know, having them divide up $20 and, you know, and, and basically if you didn't do a fair offer, it would get, it would get uh, turned down, which meant you both got zero. And like every time that, ha you know, economists would go and say, okay, well that, you know, people, yeah, people will do that for $10, but they, they won't do it for a hundred dollars. And then they would replicate for a hundred dollars. And like, there's a level which like, this is just completely disprovable, right? Because like, there's always some sufficiently high quantity of money where people will turn that down. And like, but you know, the nice—that's the, the nice thing about the applied science of like various uh, reality TV shows—is you actually get, you know, every once in a while, people like will like, you know, out of spite turn down like a quarter million dollars. You're like, okay, maybe the ultimatum game actually has something to it. Um, and and you know, not, you know, not that you know, most people—it definitely gets harder to turn down two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but people will do it, and it's not irrational. Just like that's what their the preferences are. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I completely understand that there's, there's uh, more, more reality TV shows should have these weird, should test econ theories just for science. But um, um, coming back to um, incentives, um, it's, it's, it seems very obvious, even if I, if I went to the street and, and asked 100 people, would giving unemployment insurance at the uh, make, a, make a noticeable impact on, on you know, employment and labor force participation? But we've seen evidence um, that's somewhat of the opposite. It's, it's, it's not very, very clear, but in my view, there's a, there's a case being built that unemployment insurance doesn't have much of a big effect on uh, employment and labor participation outcomes. What's the theory and practice behind this? It's, it's a little counterintuitive compared to our standard uh, supply and demand model, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so let me let me back off for a second because it's not that unemployment insurance doesn't, um, you know, discourage labor market participation. It's that in the certain, the current context of like 2019 to 20 or 2020 and 2021, that 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 whatever constraint is 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 you know not binding, right? Uh, that that unemployment insurance is not the the sort of issue, and and this get this could get uh, like the conversation gets a little choppy, right? Because like. You know, it, is there someone at some margin who having a really high unemployment insurance, you know, is, is deciding not to look for a job? Of course there is. Like, like, but like it, it gets totally overblown as an effect. Um, and like, so, so first of all, I'll say like, you know, even pre-COVID, like, like I, there, there's, you know, the, the effects of this are, you know, smaller than I think people anticipated. Like, like you know, it, 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 there are effects of unemployment, but like, they're not like massive. You know, I, I remember, you know, talking to people about this with like, you know, the first, when the first six, like the first couple of weeks, I, I think I was actually arguing with Sam Hammond about this. Um, but I was like, look, if you look at the elasticity, like from the literature, 
you know, adding, making, you know, a someone's replacement rate 100% versus 80% is going to maybe cause disemployment for two and a half weeks. Like it's just a much, much smaller effect than people give, give it credit for. So, so that, that's sort of one thing. The second thing is, is uh, as I mentioned, like right now, you know, it, it is, um, you know, a lot of de novo economic things are happening, right? And, and so like, the unemployment insurance, you know, which we know has the whole time has been temporary, you know, like has been a, a short term sort of thing, which has had a lot of like political variability in it. Um, but also like COVID is real, right? Um, and people mm-hmm. are not going, you know, they might not want to work because there is a risk of, th- of, of getting infected and people, there might not be demand for certain jobs, um, and especially early on. Um, so, so, you know, I, I like we're, we're not, it's not that like UI has no effect. It's like UI does not you know, has no statistically defective full effect in that we can see right now. So that that, that sort of, I, I, want, I want to make sure we're, we're highlighting on that because like, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, would, would 200,000, 300,000 more people be in the labor market if UI, you know, had been gone in May? Maybe, but like, that's not, that doesn't explain like the, the much larger gap that we're, we're actually seeing. So that, that, that's, that's one thing. The second point I want to raise, and this is the sort of the, the recurring thing that I've been yelling at people all pandemic, and you know, sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't, um, is that so much of the conversation around unemployment insurance is actually incredibly dismissive of people's cognitive capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. And this is goes to this is me being um, me putting on my rational actor hypothesis hat on mm-hmm. briefly. But like people would go and say, like, aha, you know, if you give people you know, a, a big unemployment insurance uh, bonus, like $600 or $300 later on, uh, they're just gonna not work because they're making more than they would if they're not working. And what I've been yelling at people the whole time, and you know, sometimes this gets through, sometimes it doesn't, is like, that's not the calculation anyone been making, right? So you go back to your, you know, your, your classic Milton Friedman permanent income hypothesis, people do not make labor supply decisions based on, am I going to make more working or not working this week, right? They're going to be thinking of it as a long-term flow. And as long as the, you know, the unemployment bonus is short-term and we've always known it's short-term, it's been renewed multiple times, but always for a fairly short amount of times, like people are going to be making decisions based on that. And once you integrate that into your sort of way of modeling people, you're like, okay, this is not going to have a huge effect. Um, this is going to be, you know, a fairly small effect. Um, because, you know, even if you, if you could make, you know, slightly more money for, you know, using a short-term UI bonus or have a job where you maybe make a little bit less money, but like it is secure. It is something that's fairly long-term. It is something, you know, obviously you can get fired ever, but it's probabilistic. Um, like, the, the, the flow of that ladder money is actually really, really important. And that gets missed. Um, and it, it, it's sort of funny. And it, it, it's the opposite of our conversation earlier. Where I'm going and being like, listen, low-income people are fairly rational actors. They are not, they're able to compute the long-term flow of an expected value of UI versus the expected value of a job. And basically arguing with, you know, almost, you know, a lot of like you Chicago type folks who are like, oh no, like, 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 like are not explicitly arguing this, but then you're like, when you go and look at their argument, they're saying, oh my gosh, people are only making decisions on what their income is next week. Um, a recent paper by Goldman Sachs, like explicitly said that they're like, oh, we assume that everybody who does not, who makes less than they would under UI is going to be out of the job market. And like, that's just a completely absurd start to start analysis. 
Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And the other thing would be that the binding constraint on jobs is probably something on the lines of childcare. And when COVID was, and when vaccines weren't available, the uh, tail risk of dying or becoming seriously injured. And um, it's, 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 it's a, a complaint yeah, yeah, that I, I, I have with Detroit. Uh, I want to quickly interrupt you too, because like one thing, like I feel like you and I, and like a lot of people who are like, very online like reading the cdc reports and like trying to figure them out i was going to like be like oh like the vaccine but like you know if you talk to lots of people they're like oh like i i guess the vaccine like you know they're not necessarily going to like trust the vaccines i mean we obviously get this from thing things and like right. but like that's you know and that's that leads to vaccine hesitancy but it's also going to lead to like decisions about like job uptake and stuff like that and you know you you have to you know people I think have, you know, fairly fuzzy guess and check models of a lot of this stuff. And so like, you know, if, if they got vaccinated, but then the Delta, you know, variant comes, they're like, okay, like I'm still going to be pretty hesitant about the job market. Or like, I have no idea what like, like what schools look like. My, my daughter's lucky enough to her school hasn't been canceled, but like you definitely read about this. And I, I think people are going to be like, okay, school, you know, I might want to not be working September, October while I sort of see how this bears out and then look for a job later. Um, anyway, so, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add that clarification for your question. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely said. Um, you've been involved in a lot of online discourse. Unemployment insurance was like was 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 one of the, the things where um, econ theory isn't very clear cut about. It. At least econ one hundred one is, but when you go higher up onto more complicated models, it's not very clear cut. What sorts of issues in your experience generate the uh, the strongest debate? Yeah. So, so first of all, I want to I want to I want to reframe this a little bit because I am my like UI is not going to have that big of an effect. That is pure econ one hundred one, right? Right? Like it's pure econ one hundred one, and the people who are arguing the opposite, who are saying like, oh no, people are going to make like these like week to week decisions on like, like they have like that's. That's not how Econ 101 tells you people make decisions, right? <laughs> and, 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 and it just really, really, like, again, this is, it, it's sort of me playing against type because I'm going to be like, oh no, people are rational actors, they're maximizing like permanent income. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, know, you have people who are making these like completely absurd assumptions of, of human behavior that are actually not motivated by anything similar to Econ 101, but like, sort of like put on this like econ 101 vibe right um but like is actually like it, it doesn't fit in, in, in you know they're completely unsupportable frameworks for how people make decisions and how this stuff works so i want i want to be very clear like i i think i'm the person arguing against you know for econ 101 and like everyone else uh, not everyone else but like you know when the, the people i'm just arguing with this are actually like you know making up new theories of econ on the fly that actually don't 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 weigh up mm -hmm. uh, but like so so you know obviously like and this goes to your question earlier about like okay how do you how does how does econ studies like you know go and go and affect policy and obviously like you know it, one thing about covid is you know it's not that like everything we know about econ is wrong or anything like that we can still apply basic econ understanding be basic econ knowledge but what it is, is that like, you know, a lot of our normal heuristics might be wrong, right? Um, in, in terms of how we apply it to policy. And that doesn't mean that econ itself is wrong, but it means like, okay, you have to be like, okay, what is the situation right now? How do, and how, you know, what, to what extent are my normal tools going to be effective and to what extent are they going to be ineffective? And how do I think about that? 
Um, and so, you know, again, like right now, um, you know, like there's a good discussion about like labor market tightness and, and you know, you, you have um, folks being like, okay, like here, you know, here's a graph that, you know, I'm um, thinking about like Alan Cole's, you know, favorite chart of, you know, wage versus employ employment mm -hmm. level and being like, okay, this has been a really, really consistent, um, you know, relationship for, you know, 30 years or whatever. And then all of a sudden it's no longer consistent saying, okay, why isn't it consistent? What's going on? It's different. Um, and, you know, econ can inform this um, and everything like that. But like, you know, th th this is unlike maybe like the GFC and even the GFC, I think this is over overrated, but like, there's nothing where you're like, oh my gosh, econ has to completely rethink it's like self from the ground up, but it is much more like, okay, what, you know, how, how do we do this and how do we apply this? Um, and the, you know, the, the people I was criticizing who are, you know, saying, oh, like the UI, if UI goes over hundred percent of income replacement, people stop working. Like that might be under some circumstances, a good model of thinking about the world. I don't think it, it's, it, it's a model that like would not, necessarily cause huge errors so it doesn't have much pressure against it uh but it, but like it's something where right now like it, it is obviously a fault a fault a flawed middle of the world and the policy advocates the policies you advocate based on that theory will, will will not work yeah no um we're on the edge of time here so my question is going to be what question do you want do you wish people asked you that you have the answer to but you've never been but but nobody's ever asked it to you before Oh, no. oh, that's a great question. And it, it, I'm not sure if I know the answer because like, you know, there, there's a bunch of questions I get asked all the time and I just love answering them. You know, I love, I love talking through the sort of like the tension between behavioral econ and, and, and non-behavioral econ. Um, what are questions that people do not ask me and I would love to be asked? Is it like, um, uh, is it like, like there's definitely something that, that, that um, the most underappreciated part of econ discourse, right? Because questions people ask you are in the end uh, downstream of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the like not asked, but, but I think that the stuff I've been talking about a lot of this um, and like maybe, maybe, maybe like what I want if people ask me about this more explicitly is like, that, that, you know, that sort of tension we, we talk about the whole time between like rational actor and behavioral actor models. But like, I think, you know, that could get, that it gets oversold and like they're, they're both sort of tools and they're both complementary ways of looking at the world and, and, and a lot. And, and you know, and, and like, I know for me, you know, and, and I feel like a lot of people sort of do this sort of like rational actor versus behavioral econ like fight to the death but they're actually like both really useful ways of looking at the world and both ways that complement each other and like you know it, it's sort of funny like the way that I I think about the world a lot of this is like you know rational actor model with 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 cognitive biases and that's a very different approach than like oh people are just irrational they're just going and doing wacky stuff all the time and like no like people are fairly you know um, I, there's a great Herbert Simon quote, which is like, you know, you know, if you look at people as a behaving system, they're, they're actually quite predictable. Like all the complexity of their behavior is caused by the complexity of the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like a really, really sort of true thing. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, like, you know, do incentives work, do, do nudges work. A lot of that is based on the complexity of the environment more so than the complexity of people. Um, and, you know, to some extent, like people overweigh that complexity because people like to 
people like to imagine that they're human beings that are completely like independent of science and independent of being able to be analyzed, um, you know, what their motivations are, but that's just not really the case. So I, I, you know, I could, I could talk about that. That's, that's something that like obviously is underpinning a lot of the things that we've talked about, but maybe uh, people don't go and make me address it that explicitly that often. Yeah. One of the small joys of running this podcast is like, I get to talk to people who are super into some tiny issue, like yours is um, behavioral econ and the rational actor model was that, or somebody else's was like supply chain or something. I'm so, so glad to see the, the other people on the internet who um, get super uh, engrossed into small issues. And, you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a random person. So um, thanks a lot for being here. I've learned a lot. I, I didn't know much about uh, behavioral economics beyond the standard. I, I have, a, I have a copy of Nudge. Yeah, I have a copy of Nudge. Right oh, yeah. There. <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks for thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great.